Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm number 9 and Psalm number 10 because they do go together because the two form an acrostic. This is a form of Hebrew poetry. It's not like our Western Americanized poetry. It's not interested in rhyming couplets or iambic pentameter. It's interested in literary form. And the literary form of these two psalms is beginning with a letter from the Hebrew alphabet and then working your way through the alphabet. Even though there are a couple of letters that are missing, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are still in order through chapter 9 and 10. So much so that some Bibles, particularly the Catholic Bible, but the early Greek and Latin Bibles combine what we consider Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. So we will take them both together tonight because the theme is consistent through them. And we'll talk about that theme in just a moment. The first thing that you read is to the choir director, that's the NASB rendering of it, in the King James, it's to the chief musician. And so some people have speculated that David is writing to God and considering him the chief musician, sort of like we have healers, we have doctors, but he is the great physician. They carry that idea over and say, well, it's for the chief musician, except that in the temple, when David assigned singers and players in the temple, there was also a music director and a chief musician. And speaking of chief musician... David may be referring to God. He may be referring to the actual person within the temple who was assigned to oversee all of the music. But then we come across this word on Muth Laban. Muth Laban quite literally means death of the sun. Over the course of years, we've kind of lost what David's intention was because there is also an instrument with the same consonants. You know that in the Hebrew language, there's primarily just consonants and sometimes vowel markers, but just that change of vowel sound can change the meaning of a word or phrase. So some people have interpreted that as to the tune of Death of the Sun, assuming that Death of the Sun would be a well-known Hebrew song or melody, and so David is saying, use that as your musical reference point or he may just be saying use the instrument known as the Muth Laban so it may be an instrument it may be a well-known melody over the course of time we've lost the sense of what that actually means however there are also translations starting back at the ancient Chaldee version that renders it concerning the death of the champion who went out before the camps And that would be a reference to Goliath. 
So maybe David wrote this psalm as he was remembering his victory over Goliath because the psalms 9 and 10 have a lot to say about the nations, the Goy, the Goyim, the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations. So perhaps David is thinking back to how through faith in God allowed him to conquer the uncircumcised Philistine and those armies. So we just don't know. The evidence that it's probably an instrument is bolstered by the fact that in verse 16, we're also going to come across the word Haggaion, which is apparently a musical notation, saying to play the music and pause because it's combined with Selah. So the indication is that it's a musical break so that people can think about what they've just heard, what they've just read. And as I mentioned, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 form an acrostic beginning each section with a successive letter from the Hebrew alphabet. And you're going to see that again as we continue through the Psalms. This is something that David did occasionally. It was a form of Hebrew poetry that he practiced. To me, the heart and soul of these two Psalms is found in verse 19 of Psalm chapter 9. So let's start there, and then we'll back up and look at the context. But with everything that we've been looking at, everything we've been reading in Revelation on Sundays, I think you'll understand why this phrase jumped out at me and why I think this is the heart and soul of this acrostic psalm. Verse 19 says, Arise, O Lord. That means lift yourself up. Make yourself obvious. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. That Hebrew word that is translated prevail there, the root of it means to be stout or to have man plant his feet in an arrogant way against God. Sort of the way that Nebuchadnezzar said, is this not great Babylon that my hands have built? And then God would not allow him to say that and get away with it, so God made him crazy. Arise, O Lord, do not let man in their ego, in their pride, don't let them stand there, plant their feet in their pride and prevail. Instead, let the goy, the goyim, the Gentile nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the goy know that they are just men. So with everything we've been studying about the sovereignty of God and the difference between God and men, the way that God has represented himself over and over again as being nothing like us. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts, my ways above your ways. God is constantly making a separation of saying, I am the sovereign almighty king. And to use David's language, we're just worms if you did get a chance to listen to what we taught last week from home, I might mention. If you got a chance to listen to that, I mean, David says, he asks God, what is man that you would pay attention to him? You've made the heavens. You've made the heavens of the heavens. You, your creation is magnificent. And, and then there's us. And how is it that you could give thought to us in our sinful rebellion against you? And so here again, David is pleading with God, 
in an almost imprecatory way. He's pleading with God, don't let men boast in their ego. Show them, teach them who they are and who you are, and do it by judging them. Put them in their place, because the arrogance of men absolutely runs rampant, as it does to this very day. When we get to chapter 10, David is going to describe natural men. And it is a description that even Paul's going to pick up in Romans 3, because human beings just don't fare very well in the Bible. From God's perspective, human beings are in constant rebellion against him unless he himself changes them. So I like the fact that David is praying that God himself will sustain his own might, his own power, his own judgment, his own righteousness, his own holiness, and that rather than men prevailing over God, that God would prevail over men, and that's just the way it ought to be. So there's your introduction. Let's start reading. Psalm number 9, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I can't help but quote Spurgeon at this point because he said, David here said that he thanks the Lord with all his heart, but half a heart is no heart. I just like that quote. Because when you're giving thanks to God, when you're worshiping God, when you're standing before God, you're either doing it with all of yourself, all of who you are, all of your capacity, or you're not really doing it. The heart in ancient thought, the heart was the center of of what made up a man. Your personality, your character, even your ability to think was wrapped up in your heart more so than in your brain. Now we know that chemically it's your brain that's doing it. And yet to this very day, we still make those kind of references when we say, I love you with all my heart. We're still making the heart the center of emotion and thought and passion. And so David is saying, with all my heart, I give thanks to you. Just like Paul saying in the New Testament that we are to make our petitions known to God, but to do it with thanksgiving. Throughout the Bible, what we see is we approach God with thanksgiving. You don't just burst into God's presence and say, hey, I want stuff. Instead, you go into God, you make your petitions known, yes, but you also thank him for the fact that he is God and that everything you have, everything you know, everything you've done, all capacities that you have, any health that you have is all a gift from him. He is sustaining you day to day. He is feeding you day to day. He's clothing you day to day. And so you have plenty to thank him about. And so David very properly approaches God with thanksgiving first and then mentions that that thanksgiving is complete. It's with all of his heart. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. And I will tell All thy wonders. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that David said, bless the Lord. And I asked the question, how could we, mere worms, how can we bless the Lord if blessing always means spiritual prosperity? How do we improve on God? How do we prosper God spiritually? And the answer is that the Hebrew word there means to speak well of, and that carried over into the Greek, eulogia, the word from which we get eulogy. The way that we bless the Lord is by speaking well of God. And so 
That is the natural reaction that David's having to thanksgiving to God. The next thing he's going to do is speak well of God. So I'm going to tell of all your wonders. He's going to go out and speak well of God among his brethren. And I will be glad and exult in thee, and I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. David uses that phraseology, O Most High, very frequently in the Psalms, because what he's saying is, the skies above us are high, the heavens beyond that, the stars and the planets, those are even higher, but God sits in the most high place. You don't get any higher than God. When you get to the point of the throne of God, there's nothing above that. God is the most high, not only positionally, but spiritually, you don't find any superiority over God. And I am glad and I will exult in thee. Now in a moment, what we're going to find out is that David's still under tough circumstances. He's still praying to God that God will protect him from his enemies. That's a theme that we've seen frequently. But even as he's asking God to protect him from his enemies, he's still saying, but I'm going to be glad and I'm going to exult in the Lord. I guess we could apply that pretty easily to our own lives and say, even when things are difficult, even when things are going hard on us, still we have what the New Testament refers to as the joy of the Lord. We know who we are. We know where we're going. I, just today, spoke to the nurse who works with my heart doctor, and everything's fine. It's, it's okay. I'm, I'm not going to fall over. She was saying today that she wanted me on a a cholesterol med. And so we had a discussion about cholesterol meds. And, uh, and I asked her the question, what exactly is cholesterol? And why do we care so much? And stumped her, turns out. Anyways, uh, <laughs> I said to her, I'm 66. I've had a good life. I'm satisfied with my life so far. I said, so if it turns out that tomorrow you find out that my LDL, whatever that is, jumped up and strangled me, and I, I died in my sleep. Don't be sad. It's, it's all good. I've had a good life. And she said, and this is a quote, well, that hurts my heart. I said, really? Why does that hurt your heart? And she said, well, I'm a nurse. I, wa I want to save everyone. And I said, yeah, but my life isn't in your hands. My life is in the hands of the God who saved me. And if I drop tomorrow, I'm fine. And she just got quiet for a moment. Okay, why did I tell you that story? Because at that moment, while she was trying to give me news of, well, you know, your body's doing this and that. We want to fix it. We want to give you some meds. And we want to... I was glad and I was exulting in the Lord. It's the same thing that hopefully all of us can do when we get the bad news that our body is breaking down and we're about to leave this world, hopefully we would not be sad about that. We would say, well, good. I exult in the Lord. I have faith and confidence that God's going to take me home. This, this is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. The world looks at death as such a negative, and we who believe in God look at it as such a positive. Anyway, David says, I will be glad. I will exult in you despite my circumstances. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And then he says, when my enemies 
The NASB says when my enemies turn back. It's when my enemies retreat. When my enemies are coming at me, but then they turn tail and run, well, then they stumble and they perish before you. This is David recognizing that when he is delivered from his enemies, it's God who delivered him. It's David recognizing that if his enemies' armies are coming at him and then they turn and they turn back or they retreat from him, he's giving God all the credit for that because he recognizes the sovereignty of God in everything. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and they perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. This is very much like what we read last week, that David continues to maintain his righteousness as king. And I keep trying to make these distinctions, like when he says, Salvation, when he talks about salvation, save me. He's not talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about being saved from his enemies as he sits on the throne in Jerusalem. So sometimes we hear words that make us think that he's speaking in large spiritual eternal terms like, I'm just, I have a just cause. Last week he maintained his righteousness. And what he's arguing is that as the king He has continued to judge righteously according to God's law and that he's trying to show justice among the people. He's not arguing that he is morally good because he knows his own sin. He says, my sin is always before me. He knows that he has been chastised severely by God for that whole Bathsheba thing. He knows that he's been chastised for counting the people. He knows that he himself is a worm. He calls himself that over and over. And he doesn't say the really righteous worm. He says, I'm a worm. I understand that you're the righteous God. But David is arguing that he has maintained an integrity as the king. And therefore, that is his just cause to ask God to protect him from his enemies. For thou hast maintained my just cause. And thou dost sit on thy throne judging righteously. So he's asking that the judgment of God is for him and against his enemies because, after all, he is ruling over God's chosen people. My ride's here. I'm going to have to go. Sorry. Verse 5. Thou hast rebuked the nations, and thou hast destroyed the wicked. That word nations right there, one more time, is goy. He's drawing a distinction between the goyim, the Gentile nations, and the tribes of the Jews. Uh, Just last night at men's group, we saw Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And he says to her, you don't know what you worship. We know what we worship. Salvation comes from the Jews. In other words, Yahweh, the God who created all people, but then chose a certain group of people, the Israelites, that is the only God who is really God. That is the only God who exists. That's the only God who has evidence. That's the only God who has history, who has prophets that you can actually check. That's the only God who sent his son to the earth, who then left us the evidence of getting up from the grave again. So he's the only God who left us actual evidence. You look at any of the gods of any of the Gentile nations, Any of them, pick a God of any of the Gentiles. 
whether mythological gods or whether pantheons of gods or whether monotheistic Arab gods or pick any of them. The one thing they do not have is evidence. And so the Hebrew God is the only God who exists. He's the one who keeps saying, I am because I am. I'm the only one. There is no other God before me. And so David is arguing here that the Gentile nations need to be rebuked. They need to be judged, and they need to be judged righteously. And Yahweh is the one to judge even the Gentiles righteously because he is the only righteous judge who exists. Mm. Thou hast rebuked the nations, the Goy, and thou hast destroyed the wicked. This is interesting, as if the rest of it wasn't. I, I hope the rest was, but... But this is interesting because suddenly here David gets kind of eschatological. And he's going to do it a couple of times in these two chapters where he's going to look forward. Look at Psalm 10. Turn forward for just a moment. Psalm 10, verse 16, and hopefully before the night's over we'll get there. The Lord is king forever and ever. The goyim, the nations, have perished from his land. Okay, had that happened at the time David was saying this? Well, no, the Gentile nations still existed at that time. Back in chapter 9, David says, You have rebuked the Goyim, the nations. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast blotted out their name forever and ever. Okay, so granted, by David's time, there were some people groups that didn't exist anymore. Mm. But as far as the Goyim, the rebels, the ones that chased after other gods, they were still on the planet as David was writing this, and yet David wrote it in the past tense. You have finally brought justice to the planet. You have rebuked, corrected the Goyim. You have destroyed the wicked. You've blotted their name out forever and ever. By the way, again, he's not talking salvationally. Is that a word? He's not talking eternally at this point when he uses the term blotted out. You can't pounce on this and say, see, God does blot people out. What he's saying is they don't exist anymore. He has erased them from being on planet Earth and blotted out their name, their reputation, their memory forever and ever. The enemy, verse 6, has come to an end. He's in perpetual ruins, and thou hast uprooted the cities, apparently the cities of the Goyim, and their very memory, the very memory of them has perished. Okay, well, we can't say that's happened, and yet David speaks of it in the past tense as something that's already been accomplished, and so he is looking forward to the day when all the other gods of all the other nations, of all the Gentiles, when those gods are finally put in their place, Yahweh is the only ruler. Yahweh is the only judge. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is on his throne judging the Gentile nations and then destroying them for their rebellion. So it has a very eschatological bent to it. But then in contrast to the fact that God is going to rebuke the nations, destroy the nations, blot out the nations come to a perpetual ruin of the nations, uproot their cities, their very memory is going to be perishing so that they're never more remembered in verse 7, but the Lord abides forever. 
So there's the contrast. The peoples of this earth, the little wormy ant-like people running around on planet earth like a fungus, shaking their fists at God, saying, we're going to do it our way. We're going to set up our own kings and our own kingdoms. One day, they're all going to perish. You know, the Hittites had a pretty fine kingdom going for a while. Find me a Hittite. But does God still exist? Well, yeah. So that's what David's getting at here. The various nations on planet Earth through history are going to come and go, but the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. In other words, he has set it up. He has secured it. And it's not going to be moved. It's rigorous. No one has the power, the ability, or the strength to change or move his throne because he sits on his throne. He judges the nations, and he will judge, verse 8, he will judge the world in righteousness, and he will execute judgment for the goyim with equity. That word, by the way, is equity, not equality. It's a big debate going on these days. He doesn't say he's going to judge with equality because he's actually going to judge some as saved and some as lost, as some as condemned and some in his presence. So they're not going to all have an equal outcome. But he is going to judge them in extreme fairness. Therefore, they get equity. They get what they deserve. Verse 9 the Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold is like a fortified tower, a place that you can go and hide and be protected from your enemies. And there are no fortified towers on planet Earth that can protect you from the wrath of God or the judgment of God. And yet he is a place of hiding. He is a place of protection for those of us who love him, who trust him. So the Lord also will be a stronghold for the downtrodden, for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. It's a fact that when the troubles of this life come, they will do one of two things to you. They will either drive you away from God as you, like we saw in the book of Revelation, as men will suffer before God and then curse God, blaspheme God in their heat and their thirst and they'll want the rocks to fall on them and hide them from God. That's one reaction. People are going to have that reaction to God or they're going to run to God during times of trouble. And God knows that. And that's why I keep insisting that if you know the sovereignty of God, you understand that the troubles of this life have purpose. And that helps you get through the troubles of this life because you know that nothing can reach you that didn't first go through those nail-scarred hands. Nothing can get to you that sovereign God didn't allow. We see that in the early parts of the book of Job when God was telling Satan, you can do this, but you can't do that. And so the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed but he's also a stronghold. He's also a hiding place in times of trouble. I mean, when do you cry out to God more? When things are going fine or when you're in trouble? When you're in pain? When you're in difficulty? That's, that's when you're going to run to God. And he knows that. I figured it out. I figure he can figure that out. 
he knows that the trouble that he brings into your life is going to drive you closer to himself and he becomes your stronghold your place of protection your place where you can hide verse 10 for those who know your name will put their trust in you same thing I was just trying to elucidate those who know God those who know his name those who have faith in Yahweh Put their trust in him regardless of the circumstances because you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Never once. Jesus said that. He's not going to turn away from those that the Father gives him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. We get accused sometimes because we're Calvinistic. Sometimes people say, well, then what about those people who come to God and God says, nope, you can't come in. You're not elect. It's never happened. Everybody who comes seeking God, we know why they're seeking God. It's because God is drawing them and God does not turn away from those who come seeking him. David knew that. Paul knew that. It's still true. The problem is men by their natural character and flesh don't seek him. They shake their fists at him and get angry at him. But you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Sing praises to Yahweh who dwells in Zion. Despite the Goyim, despite the Gentiles and their other gods and their other pantheons and their other mythological beings, there's only one God who deserves praise and worship. He is Yahweh. And where does Yahweh dwell? In Zion, in Jerusalem, in the place where the temple exists. And then I keep using this word goyim, goyim, over and over so that you get the sense of the Gentile nations. Here David changes the wording and says, declare among the peoples is the NASB. Declare among the peoples his deeds. That's actually the word for tribes. It might be a direct reference to the nations of Israel, the tribes of Israel. But he's breaking it down now and saying not just the nations of the goyim, But every tribe, every tongue, every people, tell them, declare among all those people the deeds of God. Proclaim the good works of God. Proclaim the gospel. Declare among the peoples, the tribes of the earth, his good deeds. For he who requires blood, that's God who requires sacrificial blood. For he who requires blood remembers them. And he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So David is saying, we can trust God. We can go to God. He is our stronghold. He secures us. He protects us. He's our hiding place. And then we can sing to him and praise him. And we can declare all his good deeds because he, the one who requires blood, remembers all those good deeds. He remembers our praises. He remembers our prayers and our songs to him, and he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Those are really comforting words, especially if you're among the class of the afflicted, knowing that God hears and that he doesn't forget. Verse 13, now David prays for himself. 
and says, be gracious to me, O Lord, behold my affliction from those who hate me. When I began reading Psalm 9, I said, you know, in a moment, David's going to say that he's still in trouble. He still needs to be delivered from his enemies. But even in his desire to be delivered, he starts with thanksgiving. He starts with praise to the Lord. And he starts with telling other people the good works of God. But now you can see that he's still in trouble. So he knows what he's talking about when he says that God is the stronghold for the afflicted because he himself is running to God because he's afflicted. So he's not just talking theoretically, he's actually doing it. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. Behold my affliction from those who hate me. Thou who dost lift me up from the gates of death, so that I may tell of all thy praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in thy salvation. In past weeks, we've seen David making similar arguments where he says, you know, if I go to the grave, I can't thank you from the grave. I can't praise you from the grave. I can't tell all your mighty deeds from the grave, which is why David would say, save me, preserve my life so that I can continue talking about you, praising you, saying good things about you. Same thing here. He's saying, deliver me from the affliction of those who hate me. Obviously, those who hate him want to kill him. Because he says, you do lift me up from the gates of death. But why does God lift me up from the gates of death? So that I can tell all your praises and I can do it among your people Israel. So that I can do it within the gates of the daughter of Zion. So that I may rejoice in your saving me from death. The nations, the Goyim, have sunk down in the pit which they have made into the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. What an interesting contraction of two ideas. He's saying God is going to judge them. And the way he's going to judge them is that he's going to give them enough rope to hang themselves. He's going to have them fall into the pits that they themselves have dug. Talked about that last week. And in so doing, in his providence, in bringing about the end result of salvation for his people and destruction for his enemies, God is displaying himself. God is making himself known. When the nations have sunk down into the pit which they have made, into the net which they hid, their own foot is caught, then the Lord has made himself known and he has executed judgment in the work of his own hands, and then the wicked are snared. So even though we might see it as just the circumstances of life, David sees through it to sovereign God and says, it is sovereign God who is bringing about the destruction of those people. It's not just coincidence. It's not just happenstance. It's not just lucky chance. It's the fact that God himself in his providence has made sure to judge those people and make himself known by executing his judgment. That is the work of his own hands when the wicked are snared. Think of that. And it is worth pondering to know that God's good providence 
and sovereignty is behind whatever happens. And in God's righteousness and goodness, he brings about the destruction of people and evil, all the things we've been reading in Revelation. Those judgments are all going to happen as we concluded Sunday morning. Those things have to happen And they're all part of the revelation of Jesus Christ. They're all part of God making himself known. God makes himself known by being gracious and kind and loving. And God makes himself known through his judgment, through his righteousness, through his wrath. It's all part of God demonstrating himself. David says it. Revelation says it. Jesus said it. It's a firm biblical concept. We just got to get in line with it and recognize that whatever's happening in the world This is what God has determined to happen. Think about that. And oh yeah, Haggaian, y'all. All All y'all, Haggaian. Get busy Haggaianing. That would be the verb form of Haggaian. The wicked, the NASB says, will return. The Hebrew word can also mean turn. Uh, The wicked will turn to Sheol. The the wicked are going to the dust. The wicked ultimately are falling into the grave. Even all the nations who forget God. So David has just told us that all the nations, all the Goyim, who don't pay attention to Yahweh, are going to fall into the dust, fall into death, fall into judgment. So he defines the wicked as those nations who forget God. For the needy, those who cry to God, those who petition God for their needs, the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Earlier, he told us the nations of the Goyim are going to perish forever. But here he said, the hope of the afflicted. And obviously, he means here those who put their faith in God, those who are hiding in the stronghold of God they're not going to be forgotten. Nor will the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, lift yourself up, O Yahweh. Do not let man prevail. Let the goyim be judged before thee. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are just men. Think about that. Chapter 10. Now David asks, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This is an interesting juxtaposition. Have you ever found yourself going through such a difficult time that you've wondered where God is in all this? I know I have. I know I've gone through times in my life where I thought, how does this make any sense? Where is God? (laughs) And please, if it makes sense to you, God, explain it to me because I'm not getting it. Whatever the lesson is here, duh, I'm not getting it. Well, apparently David's gone through that too because he asks, why do you stand afar off and why do you hide yourself during times of trouble? And yet he has already said, 
that we have faith in God. We can hide in God. He is our stronghold. He will judge the nations. But boy, sometimes it's just hard to see him. It's hard to see his plan. It's hard to always look through the eyes of faith and providence and recognize that God knows what he's doing. Sometimes, you can quote me on this, life is hard. Amen. And in the midst of the difficulty of life, sometimes it can feel like you're alone and where's God? David went through that too. Verse 2. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Remember the afflicted? We just talked about the afflicted. The downtrodden. The ones who in the difficulty of life have turned to God. Their stronghold is God. And the wicked, in their ego, in their pride, those wicked pursue after the afflicted so that they can afflict them more. So let them be caught in their own plots, which they have devised. For the wicked boasts about his heart's desire. And the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. A minute ago, David said, the wicked nations are those that forget the Lord. Here he says, a greedy man curses and spurns the Lord because a greedy man wants the stuff of this world. That's the essence of his greed. More me, more stuff for me, more grandeur for me. Lift me up. The wicked one boasts in his own heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. By the way, inasmuch as Jeremiah tells us that men's heart is desperately wicked, and who can know it? Can you imagine what the heart's desire of the wicked is? And yet they boast in their heart's desire, which can only be wickedness, as he just described. They go about pursuing the afflicted. The wicked, in his haughtiness, okay, so it was in his boasting, in his greed, in his pride, now in his haughtiness. How many different ways can David say pride? This again is why I keep saying pride is the most often cited sin in the Bible. If you would, Tom, I'll give you fair warning. Look up Romans 3.14, and we'll get to that in just a moment. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance, the haughtiness of his makeup, does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. I think he wrote this yesterday. Because <laughs> this all sounds really, really familiar. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His way prospers at all times. Thy judgments, your judgments, are on high out of his sight. One of the frustrations for Christians living on the planet right now, and it comes up a few times in the Bible, is I look at the world, I, I look at the wicked, and they seem to be prospering. We even have songs about, though there are others gone on about us, never molested, though in the wrong. Because it appears that the wicked are prospering in this lifetime, getting plenty of stuff. Life is going easy for them. It appears that way. And David says that the reason it only appears that way is because God's judgments, they're eternal. They are in the heavens. And therefore, they're out of the sight of the wicked man who doesn't realize that he's walking right toward ultimate judgment. 
so the reason that men go on in this lifetime never giving any thought to God is because they think they're getting away with it they're doing their evil they're doing their chicanery they're being arrogant and prideful and they think they're getting away with it and David explains it to us that they are walking headlong toward judgment but they don't see it because their eyes are earthly eyes their eyes are blinded to spiritual things they ask questions like where is God or they make statements like there is no God and yet his way prospers all the time because your judgments God are on high and out of his sight and as for all of his adversaries God snorts at them that means he's indignant with them it's the same way that we read that when the men of the earth rise up and say we won't have this man rule over us God in heaven laughs God holds them in derision from God's point of view from God's perspective human beings thinking they're something is just kind of pathetic he snorts at them he says to himself this is what the man says in verse 6 he says to himself I shall not be moved throughout all generations I shall not be in any adversity that's the way men think it's the men way it's the way men talk I'm gonna survive I'm gonna do it by my own power nothing bad's gonna happen to me I'm gonna be fine his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression and under his tongue is mischief and wickedness if you would Tom read Romans 3 14 because Paul picks that up directly from this psalm in order to say this is the state of natural man read it their mouth is full of curses and bitterness his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression under his tongue is mischief and wickedness so the point of having Tom read that is to say David recognized that the depravity of man thousand years before Jesus walked on the planet Jesus walked around talking about the depravity of human beings and Paul picked it up and spoke of it theologically as the depravity of man and to this very day we the first point of the tulip acrostic is total depravity because men are just that depraved this is not a good description of human beings his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression under his tongue is mischief and wickedness and he sits in the lurking places in the villages he doesn't sit in the gates he doesn't sit in a place of honor he sits in the places where he can hide in the shadows so that he can descend on people unaware he's in the hiding places and then he kills the innocent that's what human beings are like naturally his eye stealthily watches for the unfortunate he lurks in the hiding place like a lion in his lair he lurks to catch the afflicted he catches the afflicted and then he draws them into his net he crouches he bows down and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones in other words he's not the only one out there hurting people he's got soldiers <laughs> he's putting his mighty ones out there to do his dirty work too and he says to himself verse 11 God has forgotten he's hidden his face he'll never see it that is still the natural state of human beings they think God won't see 
God doesn't know, God isn't there, God doesn't exist, and the truth is God's biding his time, God is in the heavens, judgment awaits, but man says to himself, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face and he'll never see it. So here again, David says, just like at the end of Psalm number 9, where he said, Arise, Yahweh, let not man prevail. Now he says it again. Arise, O Yahweh, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, Thou wilt not require it. In other words, I can do whatever I want, and you're never going to judge me. You're not going to hold me guilty for it. Thou hast seen it, and thou hast beheld mischief and vexation to take it into thy hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you, and thou hast been a helper to the orphan. So break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. By the way, he doesn't mean go around snapping bones. The way arm is being used here is the same as Isaiah writing, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's the power, the might. Break the power, the might, the strength of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. In other words, seek out the wicked till there's no more left. Just like he said in the previous psalm that there's going to be an end to the wicked nations. There's going to be an end to the godless. Righteousness is ultimately going to prevail. Now he has returned to that theme and he is asking God to continually break the strength of the wicked and the evildoer and seek out his wickedness until there's none of it left. Because the only way that this wicked world is ever going to be cleaned up the only way that righteousness and holiness is ever going to prevail on the planet any less exist on the planet, the only way that's going to happen is the same way that how are you ever going to... You, you, can we talk about you? Well, not you personally. Can we... You! How are you going to get cleaned up? How are you going to be made spiritually right? How are you going to attain righteousness or holiness? The only way that can happen is if God does it. Mm -hmm. He has to change you. Well, the only way this world is going to get fixed, it's not going to be by the government, it's not going to be by politics, it's not going to be by people joining together and singing kumbaya, because what you've got is just a bunch of sinners singing silly songs. It's not going to accomplish anything. The only way that this world is ever going to be made righteous and made holy is if God himself does it, which is why David would say that you have to seek out the wickedness. You have to cleanse the wickedness of this world until there is none. Why? Because verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. That's an amen moment right there. Because God, the real king, The holy king, the righteous king, is the only one who can fix this God-forsaken world. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations, goyim, have perished from his land. Is that true today? No. No, it's still not true. And yet David could say it in advance because he knows that ultimately that's going to happen. 
We're going to get to the end of the book of Revelation. We're going to get to Revelation 21, and we're going to see the new Jerusalem after the millennium, and we're going to see that even the bridles of the horses, the pots, the pans, the everyday common stuff, everything is righteousness. Everything is holiness to the Lord. But it's not yet. But David foresees it. Jesus talked about it. John foresaw it. So it's coming. It's just not here yet. I, for one, am pretty anxious for it. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. There's the first contrast. It's why earlier I tried to point out all the different language that Paul used for the pride and the arrogance of human beings. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here David says, you're going to strengthen their heart. You've heard the desire of the humble, and you're going to strengthen their heart, and you will incline your ear to them to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may cause terror no more. So let me summarize. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are just men and vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may cause terror no more. It's nice poetry, but it also has a very prophetic and eschatological ring to it. I argue that David, knowing God the way he did, being a man after God's own heart, knows that that's the ultimate outcome of this world. And it's real easy to forget that. It's real easy to ignore that because the world is just a mess right now. But we have to keep going back to the word of God, recognizing the promises of God, recognizing the prophecies of God and the descriptions of God because God is holy. And one day his entire universe, his entire creation is going to reflect the holiness that only he has. And that is not a characteristic that men have. So God has to hold men down and teach them that they are just men. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.